Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. All right, so Gospel Promises. I I just titled it Gospel Promises Part 2 because Jesus keeps giving promises in his upper room discourse, so I didn't try to be creative here. It's Gospel Promises Part 2. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today. God, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Lord, we know that we can hear your voice. Every time we open the, open the Bible, your word, we can hear you speak to us. And Lord, because it is the clearest way that you have spoken to us. And I thank you for that reality, that we can have that confidence that we can be led and guided by you, by your Holy Spirit, as we open your word today. And I pray that that would be the case, that, that you, would, you would take your word and that, that as I speak it and explain it and apply it to our lives, that you would use it in many different ways to touch many different lives here this morning. And I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Gospel Promises Part 2. Jesus gave some pretty compelling promises last week, did he not? And that was a, it was a, a, a message, a section, a, a text there, uh, some promises that, uh, that could be um, controversial to talk about. It could be challenging to understand, and, and I hope I didn't poke too much. I know I had a lot of content last week, and it, I thought I, was preached, I preached for like an hour, but it was really my message was 45 minutes um, but I felt like I put a lot in there, so I apologize for making it so dense. But there was so much to cover. And what we saw last week, uh, these promises that Christ is giving his disciples, he, Jesus is about to go away, and they don't understand what it means that he's going away. They don't understand fully what it means that he's going to go away, he's going to die. And, and they see him as the Messiah that is going to come and bring military power, and they're going to, he's going, they're, Jesus is going to be the Messiah that will rescue them from Roman oppression. And so this is how they see Jesus. So all of these words that Jesus is saying to them are kind of like riddles to them. And then he begins to tell them promises about after he goes away, and he tells them that they're going to do the same works that he did, and even greater works that he did. And we talked about that last week, that we get to join Christ in the work of spreading his gospel. And that the greater works mean that, that, that the works that, that Christ did to spread the gospel of the kingdom when he walked the earth three and a half years was really only in the region of ancient Palestine. But now, the greater work is that it goes, it, it, the gospel has gone all the way from ancient Palestine to Shriver, Louisiana. That's pretty far. It's pretty far. They would come all the way down to Cajun country, right? And it's gone all over the four corners of the earth through the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. That was another promise that our, our Lord gave that we saw last week, that, that he would not leave us alone. He would not leave those first disciples alone, but he would empower them by the Holy Spirit that the helper would come and would empower them for gospel witness. And, and then we also saw a promise of the power of prayer. The power of prayer that, that when we would pray towards gospel ends and gospel purposes that, that God would back them up, back us up, that he would be with us, that he would hear our prayers. And when we pray for his glory and for the sake of his name, we can have confidence that he hears our prayers, that he will do what we ask, that he will come and join alongside of us and he would empower us through his spirit. Amen? So those are the promises we looked at last week. I encourage you to go back and Listen to last, last week's message if you missed it. Today, simply put, Jesus is continuing to give promises. 
So we're going to dive into these promises. And, and these are promises that are given to his first disciples, but, and, but, but we have been grafted into these promises by faith. So let's look at the text. Continue on, John 14. We're going to look at 18 through 27. Jesus continues, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, just to clarify things here, right? I think John was like, once clarify this, uh, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's God's word, amen. Some things I'm not going to cover, so I'm going to say this right now. Things I'm not going to cover in this text that we will cover later. Uh, there, there's some, uh, John in particular leans into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And, and in this section here, we talked about some last week. And in this section, I'm saving this section for John 15. So later on, when we, we're going to cover more of the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about his teaching ministry, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance the Word of God. So we're not going to cover that in this message, though we read the text, but we're going to look at that next week and the week after, the, the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into John 15 soon about abiding in the vine, and, 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 that, and, and John says again, Jesus says again in John 15 that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we'll look at that section as well when we get into John 15. But in these sections, I see kind of three more promises that the Lord is giving to his disciples. Three more glorious promises. That's what we see today. And the first one, right from the text, is this. In Christ, we have been adopted into the family. In Christ, we've been adopted into the family. We have the promise of adoption, that we don't have to be orphans. This is what Jesus says in John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And so Jesus directly says, I will not. There's some things that God will do, some things that God will not do. And this is one thing that God will not do, Jesus will not do. He will not leave his disciples. He will not leave them as orphans. What a powerful thing to think about, the things that God will do and the things that he won't do. You can learn a lot about the things that God won't do. And one of them is, is that he will never leave you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Later in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, and he, and, and he prays for all the ones that God would give him, and he says that the, that the enemy will not be able to snatch them out of his hand. He'll never leave you. You are going to be in his hand. As a believer, you are in his hand, in his grip, and his grip is not slippery. He's got you. So great, powerful promise. I will not leave you. It certainly could have been confusing to the disciples, right? What did Jesus been talking about doing? I mean, when I read this text, I'm like, Jesus, you could have been a little bit more clear. 
I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Look, look back to some of the things he said here in John 13 and 14 that we've gone through. Little children, let a, yet a little while I'm with you. I, I got a little bit of time left with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And Simon Peter said to them, Lord, where are you going? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm leaving to go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to bring you to myself. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And then Jesus says, I will not leave you. <laughs> I will not leave you. <laughs> Certainly, there could have been confusion. I, I, think, I think we would have had the same kind of reaction as these disciples. Lord, we, we don't understand. We don't know where you're going. Now you're saying that you're, that you're not going to leave us. Which way is it? Are you going or are you coming? Are you leaving or are you staying? We want to know. We want to know. I will not leave you. So what is Jesus getting at here when he says, I will not leave you? I think the key is, is what he says right after. I will not leave you as, as orphans. As orphans. Just like a child can be abandoned and become an orphan, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do that to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And one reality that, that is being said here, and we talked about it last week, is that he's not going to leave them as orphans because he's sending the helper. He's sending the Holy Spirit. He's sending the Holy Spirit who will lead them and guide them into all truth, who will, who will illuminate the words of God, who will remind them of all the things that Jesus taught them in the three and a half years that he walked the earth with them. And so this is one part of what I think Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You won't be alone. You won't be alone. But I think Jesus is also introducing one of the great powerful gospel promises that we have is that we are adopted uh, into the family of God. We're no longer orphans, but we are adopted. Orphans and adoption. He's, he's introducing a powerful gospel reality for all those who are disciples. But, you know, before we come to faith, we, we are not children of God. I know many people will say that term. Uh, they'll say that term that, that all, everyone is just a child of God. We're all children of God. And you'll hear people that aren't believers will say that, that we're all children of God. Well, Scripture very specifically says, we, we read this years or so ago in John chapter 1. Listen to John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children so what is true about all of humanity is that we're all children of God in the sense that we are made in his image. We all, have, we all have basic value, and that's why we fight for the rights of the unborn. That's why we fight for the rights and uh, for the life of, 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 all, of all human beings. All human beings are valuable because, not because of what they do or where they come from, but because of the fact that they're made in God's image, right? That, that deals with a lot of issues in our society if we get that right. But Jesus, Jesus is leaning into this. He's saying that he's talking about being, not, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. This reality is that, that we weren't children of God until we received Christ, until we believed in his name. And the biblical reality is that as believers, we are adopted into the family of God. And adoption, it's just such a beautiful gospel picture of what has happened to us as believers. You see it all over scripture, but one that stands out is Romans 8. You guys have you read this section before in Romans 8. Some people say Romans 8 is the greatest section of Scripture in all of the Bible. It's hard to argue with it. Here's one section of it. Romans 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So how do you know that you're a child of God? You're led by the Spirit of God, which means the Spirit lives in you. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Christ does not leave us as orphans. His disciples have been adopted into the family of God. They've been given the right to be called children of God, to bear the name of Jesus because of their belief in him. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You are my child. I'm going to send a helper to be with you, to teach you, to to sustain you, to empower you. But you are no longer orphans. As believers, you are no longer orphans. You are children of God. You bear his name. You bear his name. The, The unpopular truth, the truth that many people don't want to hear is the opposite of that, that, if, that before you become a believer, if, if you're not a child of God, there is a reality and a truth that is hard to swallow for people. Even for us as believers, it's hard to think about it, but Jesus said it when he talked to the Pharisees. And this is the, this is the, the truth that if you're not a child of God, you are a child of, of Satan. Jesus said it to a group of people who did not believe in him. And listen to what he said in John 8. It's really some compelling things here. Jesus said, why do you not understand what I say? There's a little side note here as I was looking at my notes this morning, going over it. This jumped out at me this morning as I was reading it. Here here is one reason why non-believers don't get it, don't understand the gospel. Here's one reason why. Jesus asked the question. He's asking this question of Pharisees who don't believe in him. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That is one of the evidences. It's one of the hallmarks of somebody who's not a believer. They cannot bear to hear the word of God. That is an evidence that they're not a child of God. They don't want to hear the word of God. They don't want to hear the truth of the gospel about sin and who they are apart from Christ. And so, so, so Jesus leans into the Pharisees and he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Father, a child of a child of God or a child of Satan, it really is, it really is the reality of the way the world is divided today. Not only are those that aren't Christians, uh, are, not only do they submit to the will of their father, Satan, but but they're also, apart from Christ, were slaves to sin. Look at Romans 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to the enemy's desires, enslaved to the enemy's will. This is a, a picture of someone who is apart from Christ, who is not a believer. You know, evangelism 101 preached by Jesus it would not win a crowd. And, and you notice it didn't, did it? What drew a crowd when Jesus walked the earth? So we talked about last week, all the miracles drew the crowd. But you know what divided the crowd? Is when he started calling people sons of Satan. Right? Start calling people sons of Satan. You're going to split the room. (laughs) You're going to lose the people. And and he did. He did because he spoke truth. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, meaning everything's okay. You're okay. We're okay. Everybody's okay. We're all good in the hood. He came to bring a sword of division to, to discern between truth and error, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Right? So here's, here's the powerful truth of the gospel. This is, this is another sword of division in our society, in our world. On our own, we could do nothing to save ourselves. 
But in society today, we believe that we can. We can be good enough. But on our own, we, we can't save ourselves. On our own, we are helpless, and we are slaves of sin, and we're not a part of the family of God. But the power of the gospel, the good news, is, is the but of the gospel. Just in, in Ephesians, but God, in his goodness, chose us as his own. He set his love on us apart from anything we could earn or deserve. Amen? Titus 3, it won't be on the screens here, something I added last night. Uh, Listen to Titus 3, verse 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. When the goodness and kindness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared. That's what you want to appear in your life, the goodness and loving kindness of God. When it appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And that's adoption. That's adoption. I will not leave you as orphans. The, the gospel picture of adoption is that, is that someone who is adopted, a child who is adopted, they, there's nothing that they can do to earn the love of somebody who sets their love on them to adopt them. They, it, 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 and this is a picture. This is a picture of adoption. This is what adoption is. This is how a child goes from orphaned and not a part of a family to chosen and loved and grafted into a family with a new name, with a new identity. You know, there, there are many families in this congregation right now that are listening to me and those who are listening online and those who aren't here who have adopted children. Many families. And and you know what's powerful about adoption? I was thinking about this as I was preparing to talk about adoption. What's powerful about adoption is that it really is so similar to the gospel. Because we see in the gospel that Christ set his love on us, on us before the foundations of the world. When we wanted nothing to do with him, when we were just not even in our mother's womb. And what about Adoption physical adoption of a child. What happens is, is that God plants a seed in the heart of, a, of, 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 of parents, of individuals, and, and places a burden on them to adopt. Long before even that child is born, long before that child was ever in their mother's womb, the womb of a mother who unfortunately could not take care of that child, but long, while that mother could not t- take care of that child, long before that ever happened in that mother's life or in that father's life, that seed of adoption was planted in the heart of that person and that person and that family and that couple and that individual. And God, in that way, is setting his love on that child. Do you guys see that? How powerful that is? Think about the child that we've ad- adopted, our, our Reagan Joy, my lucky duck. Long before we ever laid eyes on her, we set our love on her. We made a decision. God, you have a child for us. We're going to adopt. And there was nothing at all that Reagan could do. Nothing she could have ever done that could have made us want to choose her. But we chose her. I remember the phone call. They called us. Hey, we have a two-day-old baby. Are you interested? And at that moment, we weren't sure if we were interested, but we couldn't say no to a two-day-old baby. So the next day, here's a baby. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) And two, three years later, she's ours. She, She was adopted at that moment in our hearts. 
But officially, she was adopted and took our name three years or so later, four years later. When was it, babe? Almost three years. That's the gospel. That's a picture of the gospel. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Beautiful picture of the gospel. So, so it leads me to, to this question. I think about this first promise that Christ is giving. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I, I'm going to come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And so here's the question I want you to think about within the context of adoption. Here's something to, to ponder. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? As a believer, do you know who you are? I loved what April said earlier. That those, those women, when they come to Christ, they don't, they don't say, I am an addict of this drug or that drug, or I, I'm not this person who did this, or I'm not an adulterer, I'm not this sin or that sin. When you're a child of God, you are a new creation in Christ. You bear his name. You have the family resemblance. God in his mercy had Reagan be adopted into another pale white family. So nobody would mistake that she was, she was ours, right? And we could have adopted a darker-skinned child if God would have so chosen, but, and we would have chosen. You bear the family resemblance, right? You are a new creation in Christ. Your sin doesn't define you. Your past doesn't define you. Everything that you come and you submit to the cross is under the blood of Jesus Christ, and it is forgiven and forgotten to be remembered no more. The Lord remembers it no more. Do you know who you are in Christ? That grace is greater and stronger than anything you could have ever done or do. It's the grace of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think often we think the gospel is only for non-believers. The gospel is for non-believers, absolutely, but the gospel is for believers. It's a message that, that we hear when we are not a child of God and we are enslaved to sin. We hear the gospel message and the light comes on and now we can bear to hear the word of God and the light shines in and we come to realize who God is and who we are and we surrender by faith and we are changed forever. We're adopted into the family and we get a new name, child of God. And the gospel's for us. Every single day as believers, we are reminded of that powerful reality. And it changes the way we see who we are. It changes the way we live today and tomorrow and for the rest of our life. And it compels us to be who God has called us to be. Amen? Amen. That's the first gospel promise. In Christ, we have been adopted into the family. That's good news. We can go home right now. But I got two more promises in Christ, we've been adopted into the family. Next, we see that in Christ, we have the assurance of eternal life. So, Bateman family, this is what I preached yesterday. You're going to hear it again. For those who weren't at the memorial service, this is, uh, this is what I preached yesterday. Look back to the text, John 14, 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live in Christ we have the assurance of salvation. That's a promise. Because I live, you also will live. Now, just to do a little understanding here, when Jesus says, but you will see me, yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. What does that mean? I think what it means is, is that for a little while, meaning the world's going to see him, then he's going to die, they're going to crucify him, he's going to be buried, but he's going to rise from the dead. And what do we know about what happened after the resurrection? Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
What happened after the resurrection? Who did Jesus appear to? Only his disciples. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, disciples at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to his disciples. And that's what he's saying there. The world won't see me for a little while, but you're going to see me. And Jesus is trying, again, to assure his confused and troubled disciples that he will be with them. And Jesus tells him, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He's going to give him another helper, and this is a, another gospel promise. So here's another gospel promise. Because I live, you also will live. So this is at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that in Christ we have the assurance of eternal life. We have the assurance that we have a new nature, that our sins are forgiven, and that, that we have a new identity. But another result of the gospel is that we have assurance of eternal life. Because Christ has risen because the resurrection is true, and because the risen Savior promised to bring us to himself, we can have assurance of eternal life. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who die, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We, we don't grieve. Yesterday, when we were at this service to honor the life of Miss Beatrice, though there was grief, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. What's the hope? It's the blessed hope. It's the assurance. It's the promise that because Christ lives, we will live also. Because Christ is in Christ, we can have the assurance of eternal life and that one day, all believers, including Ms. Beatrice's family, those who believe Christ, will be reunited with her again. Be reunited with her again. But the opposite of this is true. So without the reality of the, of the resurrection, this life is all we get. If Christ, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, he kind of doubles down on it. He says, if the resurrection is not true, we, we should all be pitied. But in fact, it is true, but Pondering if it wasn't true, this life is all we get. This temporary existence becomes our hope without the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Without the re reality of the resurrection, death has the final say. Death has the final victory over, over everyone. But God's word reminds us who has the final say over death. Who has the final say? We sang it earlier in, in that second song that we sang. Death, where's your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Death has no more sting in the life of the believer. Thanks be to God that we have the final victory because of Christ. Because Jesus defeated death. Those who belong to him by faith share in his victory. But it really reminds us when we think about eternal life and the assurance of eternal life because Christ lives, we will live. It, it really helps us to think about the life that we live now. And there's kind of two ways that you can live this life now. 
You can live this life from the perspective of, I'm going to suck everything out of this life to make the most of it. You know, I've quoted this country song before, and this is kind of one mindset you can have. I I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull man, bull named Fu Manchu. I I love deeper and something sweeter. Um, What's the rest? Y'all know it. It's Tim McGraw, but I was trying to finish the line. I forgot it. I don't listen to it very often. I don't. But I heard it one day on a job site years ago. It stuck with me. That's one aspect of life. Or as a commercial, there's a commercial uh, that, was, uh, that I saw one time, and the commercial had this guy who was at a funeral. He's at a funeral, and he's looking at his watch because who can be bothered by a funeral, right? You know, who's got the time for that? He's looking at his watch. And so you can see he doesn't want to be there. And, and he hurries off after the funeral, and he gets into his car, and he speeds off into the snow. It's snowy. And he speeds off into the snow, and he hurries his way to a nightclub, to a, a club, and flashing on the screen are, are these words, it's later than you think. And another flashes on the screen, you have a single life to live. And then another sign flashes on the screen while he's in the, the club drinking alcohol, and it's a, it's, a, it's a commercial for liquor. And so the message is pretty clear. That's one perspective. One day you'll be six feet underground, so live it up. And that's all the world has. It is true. <laughs> that's all the world has. You have one life to live, so live it up and live it for yourself. But for the believer, this is not the only life. There is a second life. It's called eternity. It's called eternity. And there's a heaven and there's a hell. And there's an eternity. And so as believers, here's the way that I think we should live our life. In light of eternity, the truth that we don't have only one life, but we have two. Uh, Here's some questions I think are important for us to ponder. Let's think about these questions. What kind of impact am I making in my family for Christ? What kind of impact am I making in my family for Christ? It's a great question to ponder when we think about the reality of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ and and our family. Here's another one. What kind of impact am I making in the body of Christ? Am I just here? Do I got what part do you have me to play in the body? Uh, Paul gives great testimony to the intricacies of the body and that and that the the parts that are most visible can't look down to the invisible parts and seem and say that that we're greater than you you know the toe can't say the head can't say to the toe that i'm greater than you everyone is invaluable and should be a part of the body of christ what kind of impact am i making here's another question what kind of impact am i making in with those who god's put in my realm of influence and this is all through a gospel lens it kind of leads to the the last question what kind of impact Am I making in the spreading of the gospel? So I want to encourage you, lean into the Circle of Three campaign that we're in. Think and pray about those that Lord's laid on your heart. And we have gospel tracts for you at the, at the welcome desk. You can go and take one and think about who you can give that to and reach out to and spread the gospel. Because for believers, there is an assurance that because Christ lives, we will live in Christ. We can have assurance of eternal life. And that reality should motivate us to live differently now and to evangelize and to spread the good news of the gospel. Amen? So first two promises that Christ has given, we see from the text in John 14, in Christ, we've been adopted into the family. 
in Christ, we have the assurance of eternal life. And really, in essence, because of these two promises, here's the third promise. In Christ, we have a peace that the world cannot give. Because, because we've been adopted into the family, because we have the assurance of eternal life, the implications of that is that in Christ, we have a peace that the world cannot give. Jesus said it, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's so good. The promise of peace that Jesus gives his disciples here is built on the fact that they belong to him. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. The result of these gospel realities is peace. It's a peace that the world cannot give. You know, Jesus says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That word peace is the word shalom. Shalom, peace. It was a common greeting amongst Jewish brothers and sisters and men and women when they would leave each other. Shalom, shalom as you go. Shalom, peace, peace. Jesus is is in essence saying shalom with you as I go. Shalom to you as I am leaving. But this farewell greeting from Jesus was not a superficial goodbye greeting, but rather, listen, but rather a real experience of peace that he was giving them. There's a big difference. Peace. See you next time. Shalom. And we can say that, right? We we come to church. Shalom until I see you again. Shalom. Or peace out. I'll see you at the next football game. Peace out. I'll see you at school next week. No, it's not that kind of peace. It's, 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 it's a real peace. Peace. My peace I give to you. My peace. There's a, there's a real experience of peace that he was giving. And the truth is, is that only Jesus can give true peace. It's not superficial. It is a real peace that resides in the depth of the heart of all those that have been adopted into the family of God. It's a real peace. You know, Jesus compares it. Did he not? Look, look back to the text. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So he compares the peace that he alone can give with the peace that the world offers. So it's really obvious here that Jesus is making a clear point that there's two kinds of peace that you can have. You can have a peace that he offers or you can have a peace that the world offers. The world will give you a substitute peace will offer something that would resemble what peace could could look like from their perspective, but Jesus gives you his peace. And so really, he's comparing. I I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this comparison. Listen to this comparison. He says, the world bases its peace on its resources. Okay, follow me here. The world bases its peace on its resources, while God's peace depends on his resources. To be right with God means to enjoy the peace of God. The world depends on personal ability, but the Christian depends depends on Christ's ability. In the world, peace is something you hope for or work for, but to the Christian, peace is God's wonderful gift received by faith. Unsaved people enjoy peace when there is an absence of trouble. Christians enjoy peace in spite of trials and troubles because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it. The world's peace is dependent upon 
power and control and resources and money and experiences and lack of trouble. D.A. Carson says it like this, the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana means the Pax Romana was won and maintained by a brutal sword, but the peace of God, by contrast, as Jesus was contrasting, was won by an innocent man who suffered and died at the hands of the Romans. I've heard it said another way, Jesus fought our fight so we could have his peace. He fought our fight so we could have his peace. Are you guys tracking with me? Lean in close here. Listen to this end. We're concluding this. I want you to, I want you to, to feel this, to, to see this, to know this. I want you to catch this. God's peace versus the world's peace. Peace by force or circumstances versus peace that Christ has won through the cross. Listen to Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Pastor Bill read this earlier. Tell God what you need. And thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. It's powerful, a peace that exceeds anything we can understand, a peace that exceeds our circumstances, cancer, no cancer, money, no money, whatever state I'm in, children who love the Lord or who don't love the Lord, circumstances that I like or don't like, no matter what life situation I find myself in, the, the, the weight of the world, it can feel right now like the weight of the world is resting on your shoulders. But as a believer who is in Christ, you can have a peace in the middle of that situation, the middle of that storm. And this is the kind of peace that the world just can't seem to find. Have you been paying attention lately? You've been paying attention lately? It's a peace that the world just can't seem to find. They're looking for peace. They're looking for peace. Let me look and listen to the social commentators of our day. Let me listen. The upheaval and the the pain and the trials and the depression and the anxiety and peace. Where's peace? We need peace. Where's peace? And there's war and there's famine and there's there's drought and there's fire and there's and where's peace? We need peace. We need peace. Listen to some headlines. June 21st, 2023, New York Times headline. A crisis is coming. The twin threats to our democracy. Is our democracy threatened? I, I, I'd be concerned a little bit. Where's peace? June 19, 2023, The Economist headline, The World Economy is Still in Danger. Inflation, 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 interest rates keep going up higher and higher. What is the dollar worth anymore? December 16, 2022, CNN had a headline that said, Everyone can now agree America has a border crisis. May 23rd, 2023, NBC News says this, social media, social media is driving a teen mental health crisis. And that's true. Where's the peace? April 17th, 2022, New York Times again has a, had a headline that read, a violent crisis from smaller acts of violence to mass shootings. Where's the peace? August 16th, 2023, the Daily Wire the headline read, the real crisis facing the American family. And there is a crisis facing the American family. But where do we find peace? Where is peace found? My wife 
was at a store last week and a random man who she had never met in her life here or anywhere walks up to her starts having a conversation with her and she said he's sweating he's like just sweating and looks anxious and worked up and he starts saying these things that she has no clue what he's talking about he says something about says something about have you heard the song have you heard the song? It's speaking for those who feel overlooked. A rich men. He says something about rich men, rich men, and Richmond. And he's talking about, and he said, fudge rounds and government. And what's, what's, what's going on? And Estelle comes home and she's like, I don't, this is the weirdest thing I ever heard. Some random guy who is sweating, who's talking to me about rich men and rich men and fudge rounds and government and people are upset and people are worried and people are angry. And she's like, what is going on, Ben? I said, I don't know. Let me Google. And sure enough, Oliver Anthony wrote a song that got 25 million plus views called Rich Men, North of Rich Men. Speaking of those in Washington, Rich Men in Washington. And really, the song is speaking for those who feel overlooked and taken advantage of. It speaks for the working class who feel the country is not what it should be or what it used to be. Right? You listen to the song. I, listen to the, I've li- <laughs> I know there's some cursing in it, but I've listened to it probably a dozen times. I've listened to reactions to it. Just listen to what people say about it. It's so compelling to think about. It's like a, it's a social experiment. Listen, this is what the Washington Post opinion piece said about it. For anybody who feels like the world has spun off its axis and that in American society, right, is often treated as wrong and wrong is treated as right, the song strikes a chord. Anthony laments that he and his peers feel as though they are doing the right thing and are still financially falling behind. Although the song was seemingly instantaneously embraced by conservatives as an anthem for our bewildering times, the irony The the irony is that the average progressive probably also feels like the world has been turned upside down and nothing makes sense. The writer says, sing on, Oliver Anthony, sing on. You know what that song represents as I listen to it? It represents the brokenness of a life lived apart from Christ. That's what it represents. The brokenness of a life lived apart from Christ. This is the world in which we live. And there was a sense that the words sung by Oliver Anthony come from a deep place of brokenness in his life, but in our society today. And it's a longing, a deep sense of brokenness and longing for right and wrong to be clear. And Oliver Anthony is right, I think, in his lyrics. The world is broken. But here's what Oliver Anthony doesn't offer in his song. He offers no answer, no peace, no solution. And what it does, and the sense of what happens is it stirs anger, bitterness, and resentment, and hatred, and and the cursing. It like it feeds it in you, and that's right. My dollar's worth nothing, and and I'm working all these hours and overtime pay, and and it's and the dollar's worth nothing, and people are taking advantage of the government, and ah, and you go and you go and you're angry. At the end, you still have no peace. You still have no peace. So if it is your favorite anthem, I'm here to tell you, you need to stop listening to it. It won't help you. It may, it may stir the anger in your heart even further, and I get it. But the world offers no answer. The, off, the world offers no answer to the brokenness that we see. And Jesus 
is here saying to his first disciples and saying to us today, here's these promises I'm here to offer. And one of them is, it's my peace I give to you. My peace is here. It's not like the world gives it. So here's the reality of peace. Peace Peace can't be bought by money. Money can't buy it. A bottle can't find it. Relationships can't fill it. Only Christ can give it. Jesus is the answer when corrupt politicians take advantage of their power. Jesus is the answer when it seems like the world all around is upside down. And Jesus is the answer when it feels like things will never get better. Jesus looks at his disciples in John 14. And he leans in and he says this. He says, in essence, in, in me, you can be adopted to the family of God. I will not leave you as orphans. In me, you can have the assurance of eternal life because I live, you can live. And he says, in me, you can have a peace that the world cannot take away and the world cannot give. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Amen? So here, I close with this. A society becomes godless because its people become godless. A society becomes godless because its people become godless. A world without God looks to create its own peace. Yet, the solution is not less God, but more God. Or, as C.S. Lewis put it, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. Amen. It's God's word. Powerful promises.